uh, Galatians 5 as we continue to march through Galatians and we're in the passage now that deals with the ninefold fruit of the Spirit and because we're taking them one at a time we've slowed down uh, obviously we are bringing in some secondary passages that speak to each one of these whether it's love or joy or peace and so I'll have you uh, also turning to some other places tonight in your copy of the scripture. But uh, let's pick up again just reading in verse 13, and we will read all the way down through verse uh, 23. Paul says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not uh, to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. I'm sure many of you know about the Great Chicago Fire that happened in 1871. Maybe you've read about that before, where over 300 uh, people died and another 100,000 were left homeless. Now, you know, tragedies like, like that have always had a way of bringing out the best in some people, right? The worst in some, but the best in others. Now, one such person at the time was Horatio Spafford. You recognize that name? If you don't, you will in just a moment. <laughs> Spafford was an attorney who lost a lot of real estate in the fire. Now, to make matters worse, his son died about the same time, adding tragedy onto tragedy. Now, in spite of this, Spafford unselfishly helped others who were homeless, um, others who were grief-stricken. He did whatever he could through acts of generosity and service, and he was known around Chicago as being a very devoted Christian man who helped a lot of people. Well, about two years later, in November of 1873, Spafford and his family decided to take a vacation. He was good friends with D.L. Moody the Billy Graham of his day. And D.L. Moody was preaching a crusade in England. And so the Spafford family decided to take a ship, go to England, and visit with Moody and attend some of the crusade. 
And so they were getting ready to leave, and just as they were getting ready to leave, some legal matters came up demanding Spafford's attention. He had to stay behind to help people with various issues. And so he decided to go ahead and send Anna and his four daughters on ahead to England, and he would catch up with them as soon as possible. Anybody remember what happened? Off the coast of Newfoundland. Uh, the ship that Anna and his daughters were on sank. And Anna sent Horatio a uh, telegraph. Does anybody recall what the telegraph said? Saved alone. Saved alone. Their four daughters had perished. Well, when Spafford got the chance, he went on to England to meet up with Anna. And they let him know uh, points on the map, longitude, latitude, and so forth, about when they crossed the spot where his four daughters had perished. And uh, his response, he penned the words to a song we often sing. When peace like a river attended my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Now, folks, those who have never had their faith tried and tested may only imagine what it would take to be able to write words like Horatio Spafford wrote. He had the peace of God. You know, peace is one of the major themes in the Bible. It appears more than 80 times and occurs at least one time in every single one of the 39 books of the New Testament. Did I get that right? 20, 27. I said 39. 39. 39. I mean, 27 books. I knew as soon as I said that. I was, but anyway, peace occurs at least one time in every one. We need the peace which comes from God because at some point in our lives we struggle to maintain the peace we need. For some people, it might be the death of a loved one. Uh, for others, it might be a diagnosis from the doctor that throws you in a loop. Still others, it might be a job loss or a divorce or financial bankruptcy. Sooner or later, tragedy comes to every life, or at least trials do. All you have to do is live long enough to experience bad things in life. And you know, we look at the world and we see the condition of the world and we wonder, quite frankly, is peace even obtainable? But you know, as we look at God's Word, we see that it is not only attainable, but it is normal in the life of a person who is walking in the power of the Spirit. Because the peace that Paul is talking about here is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not natural. It's supernatural. 
It doesn't come from within us. It comes from God. Now, it comes also as we abide in Christ. In John 15, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you, and you shall bear much fruit. Well, I want to talk about peace tonight, and we're going to talk about it in three different ways. First of all, when the Bible thinks of peace, it talks primarily and most importantly about what? Peace with God. And then having peace with God, we can enjoy what? The peace of God, right? And having peace with God and enjoying the peace of God, then we can have peace with others. And the Bible talks about peace in all three of those aspects. And that's very important for us today, is it not? Uh, no doubt, it's the second one, the peace of God, that Galatians 5.22 mainly has in mind. But we can't come to that one until we address the first one. And so there's the, the, the peace with God. Peace with God. The most important kind of peace is to have peace with God. Why is that the most important? That deals with your salvation. With your eternity, exactly. You know, Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. When a man is born again, he comes to have peace with God. Now, folks, that's important to understand because the Bible says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the Bible goes on to say the wages of sin is what? It's death. You know, if somebody ever asked you what is the greatest work on theology ever written, what would you say? What book in the Bible, probably? The book of Romans. And let's just think about what Paul is saying in that book before we move on here. Uh, he, he said that he wanted to impart to the Romans some encouragement from them. And then he wanted to gain the same from them so that they could encourage and edify one another. But before he gets into all of that, he starts in Romans 1 talking about the gospel and the power of the gospel. And he says the power of, the, the, the power of God and salvation, the gospel is the power of God and salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And Paul went on to explain how we all need this salvation and he did so in a very unique way because Paul painted the bad news of the human race before he held out the good news. So in Romans 1, 2, and 3, Paul is concentrating on the bad news. And when you read Paul's assessment of the human race in those three chapters, you would be tempted to say, Paul, you really don't think too highly of the human race, do you? But he's looking at the human race very realistically. Lost men without God. And what's God's verdict? 
that we're estranged from God, we're enemies with God, we don't have peace with God. And he points out, first of all, that the Gentile is not in a state of peace with God. He is at war with God. Why? Because he says in Romans 1.18 that the Gentile has suppressed or rejected the truth of God. And he's tried to make his own God. His own God and his own religion to his own liking. And Paul says as a result of that, they are under the just wrath of a holy God. The orgay of God. The wrath of God. And Paul says you can see this in the fact that God has surrendered them over. God has turned them over to go their own way. Because they've rejected his truth three times. God says he's given them over. Given them over to a depraved mind. Given them over to uh, depraved lust. And so forth and so on. He says God's, God has basically greased the sliding board in the direction that the unrepentant Gentile is determined to go in. Sorry about that. <laughs> and the verdict is that they're under the wrath of God. But then in chapter 2, who does he turn his attention to? The Jewish person and the religionist. This might be the one who hears Paul talking about this terrible assessment of Gentiles, and they might be standing back saying, Sick them, Paul. Sick them. You tell them. And so, what's Paul saying? You're guilty too. You're just as big of a hellbound sinner. You who are trying to depend upon the law to make you right with God. You're just as guilty. In a different way, maybe, from a different angle, but you're just as guilty. You're just as condemned, and you're under the wrath of God, too. And so Paul offends everybody. He's an equal opportunity offender in Romans 1 through 3. But then, what's he do? He begins turning the corner, doesn't he? In chapter 3, still in chapter 3, and following, he turns the corner to give the good news. Yes, we need to understand the bad news, but we need to understand the bad news and how guilty we are so we'll see what God has done for us in Christ. And he begins talking about Jesus. Romans 3.25. He's the means by which our sins are forgiven, the propitiation. And when Christ died on the cross, he became our substitute. And God took all the sin and guilt in the world, he placed it on Christ. Christ died in our place. And in Romans 4, Paul makes it clear that what God requires is that we repent of our sins and believe upon Jesus. And what is that? That's faith. And then as you get into Romans 5, he says, and here's what he's been working up to, therefore being justified by faith, what do we have? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now that's the best news you'll ever hear, right? Isaiah 53 says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Folks, that's the Old Testament, right? Talking about Jesus. I got Testaments mixed up. Old Testament, 39 books. New Testament, 27. But even in the Old Testament, 39 books. What do you find in those 39 books? Do you find any references to what God was going to do for us through a perfect sacrifice? Absolutely. Isaiah 53 is one of those places. Then in Colossians 1, he says, It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. The world is looking for peace, and it will never enjoy peace until it knows Jesus Christ, the one who is the Prince of Peace. You'll never have deep, lasting peace inside. The kind of peace you get from God. You'll never have that until you know the Prince of Peace. And through knowing Him, you have peace with God. Now again, when we talk about peace, there is no more important or urgent meaning of peace than that right there. Now, then we can move on to talk about the peace of God. Having peace with God means that you can have the peace of God. And I want you to reflect on the thought tonight that God is at perfect peace. Hebrews uh, 13, 20 reminds us that God is at peace and He is a God of peace. And so as we walk in His Spirit, we can enjoy His peace. Again, it's not natural. It's supernatural. And let me add something else here. If you go out and pursue peace on your own, it will always be elusive. You will come back empty-handed because Jesus said in the world you're going to have tribulation. And of course, he went on to say, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. But the reason most people never find peace is because they go out looking for peace. You don't find it that way. You find the kind of peace the Bible is talking about by looking to Jesus. You pursue him. And then we receive peace as a result of being made right with him. John Wesley said, when I looked to Jesus, the dove of peace flew into my heart. But when I looked at the dove of peace, it flew away. So don't look to peace for peace. Look to Jesus, the Prince of Peace for peace. 
And on the night before he was crucified, he said, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Think about that. The night before Christ was crucified, he said, My peace I give to you. Jesus had perfect peace even though he was about to endure the cross the next day. Now, write down some subpoints to the peace of God. The, the peace of God is possible when our minds are stayed or fixed on God. Isaiah 26, 3. It says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Fix your mind on Christ. As we look around the world today and we see all the negative and bad stuff going on in the world today, that could get you in a pretty bad frame of reference, couldn't it? Keep your mind stayed on Him, on Christ. Amen? Amen. Scott, one reason why I feel that the people of this world, the lost people and so forth, do not find peace. Once they find it defined, they don't agree with it. Right. And thus, they can't have it on their terms. And if they can't have it on their terms, they don't want it. And man, that's why man, somebody don't... said man's heart is a perpetual idol factory. Yeah. That's true, isn't it? Exactly. And that's when I witness to my dad, I usually see exactly what we're looking at here. Yeah. Because of the troubled look on his face, I said, do you want peace with God? Uh-huh. All right, well, let me show you how to get it and get the peace of God in the process. Amen. And, uh, you know, until we're willing to do that, we're not going to get it. Right. We may know about it, but we won't get it. That's right. Well, a, a second sub-point here. The peace of God is possible when we obey God. Isaiah 48, 18. God says, All that you heeded my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. There are people that don't have peace because they're in rebellion to God. Even some Christians that some sin has got a hold of their life and they're in bondage to some sin. They're in rebellion to God. And they don't have peace. And until they deal with that, they're not going to enjoy the peace of God. And then a third sub-point here, the peace of God is possible because we don't have to worry. Philippians 4, 6. What's Philippians 4, 6 say? Somebody read that for us tonight. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, by thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. Amen. We're to be anxious for nothing. We know how to worry, don't we? We don't have to be taught how to worry. 
Now, the Greek word there has to do with fretting or despairing. Some people misunderstand this verse uh, to mean that the Christian doesn't need to take on any responsibilities in the world. Just sit back and be carefree about everything. That's not what it means. But it says it means that we don't have to be overly concerned about the everyday cares of our life. and We don't have to fret about the everyday necessities of life. And I'll get to that in a moment, but I want you to think about the uselessness of worry. Psychologists have indicated that we generally worry about things for the most part that never end up coming to pass. But we worry anyway. Worry or anxiety comes from a word that means to be pulled apart in different directions, and that's what worry does. The old English word meant to choke or to strangle, and that's another good description of what worry does. It strangles the life out of us. Dr. Brian Harbour, a pastor out of Texas, probably retired now, but he said in a little book he wrote on the book of Philippians, he said in a quote here, worry is a sin because it is based on the assumption that God is not able to take care of our lives. Worry, he says, is therefore a theological problem. And the solution is to expand our concept of God to, to recognize he's able to do more than we could ever even ask or think. That's a great quote because, folks, worry is, at heart, it's a theological problem. And the answer to that is that we would get a hold of a biblical view of God. Pastor, I just have to make a comment. Katie, when she went to the deaf guy that had operated, she said, do I need to worry every time I get a headache? He said, I sure hope not because that would mean I did a rock. You know, anxiety fails to take into account the promises of God. He's promised to look after the life he's created. And that, that was Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 25 and following. If God's given us the greater, which is our life, then God will take care of the lesser, which is what that life needs to survive. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God's done the greater, we can certainly count on him to do the lesser. I want you to think a moment about where your value comes from. You know, the world says it comes from your position or wealth or looks or whatever. But the Bible says our value comes from the fact that we're created in God's image. God created us. God made us. Not only did he make us, but we're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And so if God created us in his image and redeemed us by the blood of the Lamb, that says something about our value, right? And that's Jesus' point in Matthew 6. God created you. You have value in the eyes of God. You're the creation of God. 
And so you don't have to fret about the necessities of life. God's going to provide those. A fourth sub-point here, the peace of God is possible because we're to pray. Philippians 4, 6 says we cease from worrying by engaging in praying. You know, some people do everything but pray when they're worried. They pace the floor. Some drink or turn to drugs or whatever, just try to escape worries a lot. The Christian response is that we are to pray. We are to pray. And Paul there in Philippians 4 uses three words there. Prayer is the first general word that means as we go before God, we just spend some time in adoration and praise and worrying, I mean, and, and uh, worshiping God. Because when we're worried, who are we focused on? Self. And so when we go before God in prayer, we make, first of all, that we make sure we go before Him in an attitude of worship, focusing on Him. Corey Tenboom once said, When I look at the world, I get distressed. When I look at myself, I get depressed. But when I look at Jesus, I am at rest. And then supplication. Supplication, the second word he uses. Share, share with God the things that are heavy on your heart. And then thirdly, he says, do so with thanksgiving. We're to be grateful to God for everything. Even the thing you're worried about may be a blessing in disguise in the long run. <coughs> and then Gene, go on to read verse 7. You read, I had you read verse 6. Go on to read verse 7. And the peace Peace of God that surpasses all understanding. What's that tell you? It's not something you can do on your own. Not something you can do on your own? Not something you can even put into words, right? Going back to what you were saying about being supernatural. Mm hmm. Yes. If it's beyond understanding, exactly. it's got to be See, a, a peace that the world would give would be a peace that would be understandable, right? Because the world would say, look, if everything's going good in your life, then it naturally follows that you can be at peace. But what the Bible is talking about here is a kind of peace that you have when by the world's standards you shouldn't have it, but you have it anyway. It's a peace that comes from God. You can't, you can't put it in human words. And he says, this kind of peace will guard your hearts and minds. That word guard was used of a military battalion. It's like God sets up a guard of peace around your life. Well, that's the peace of God. Peace with God, peace of God. And then thirdly, Paul mentions here peace, or, or I should say the Bible mentions peace with others when it talks about peace in general terms. Peace with others. 
Because God has secured our peace with Him through Christ, and He shares His peace with us through the Holy Spirit, the last thing we can say about peace is that Christians are under obligation to be at peace with one another. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue peace. Now try that one on for size. The next time you say, I can't wait to get so-and-so place tomorrow. I'm going to give so-and-so a piece of my mind. I'm going to let them have it. That's not exactly somebody pursuing peace, is it? Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Folks, a Christian is to be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. Now that's not to say that Christians don't aren't to confront sin, but we're to do it in the right spirit with the right motive. A Christian is to be a redemptive type person. That's the goal. Romans 14, 19 says, So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Pursue the things that make for peace. Kind of chew on that one for a while. What's not working in your relationships? What's, what's the things that are not making for peace? Well, how do you need to deal with those things then? Likewise, what is working in your relationship? Well, reinforce those things. Pursue things that make for peace. As, as far as possible, as it depends on us, we're to be at peace with all men and we are to pursue the things that make for peace in the building up of one another. Boy, now, 2021, that's a needed word, is it not? Am I talking to somebody here tonight? I don't want to take it for granted that you don't have peace with God. If that's the case, you're still in a state enmity with God. Hostility. <clears throat> Think of that. You're estranged from God. And if you die in that state, you will be eternally estranged from God. God's verdict of your life is you're guilty and you're under His wrath. Through Christ, He's reconciled you. You've got to come to Him. You've got to believe. You've got to repent and believe. And you can do that tonight. By your bedside tonight. <coughs> Surrender your life to Christ. Follow Christ. And repent of your sin. And trust in Him and Him alone. Then once having peace with God, you can enjoy the peace of God. 
But if you focus on the world and get caught up in all the worries of life, the peace of God's going to escape you. You've got to keep your mind stayed on the Lord and live in obedience to Him and pray and pray and pray and pray about everything and keep praying about everything. And you will enjoy the peace of God. And then just examine your relationships. Do you have peace with others? As far as it's dependent on you, have you pursued peace? Have you dealt with things in your life and your relationships that would prevent peace? You and I need to determine that as followers of Christ, we need to live to be a redemptive, reconciling element in society. Not the type of element that drives wedges and divides and turns against people. Peace. Fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Boy, that's like the big three, isn't it? Right there. And we got six more to go. Why do you think he says against such things there is no law? Who fulfilled the law perfectly? Jesus. If we have Christ, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Right? And the law that says the wages of sin is death cannot condemn you if you are in Christ. Because there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. There's no law that can pronounce you guilty and lost and estranged from God if you've been reconciled to Him through His Son. Amen?